Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, actually months, um, we've been in the Gospel of John, but very much in particular, John chapter 3, we are looking at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And last week, we talked about the different obstacles that we face when we consider the idea of the new birth. And there were three of them. There was ignorance, obstinance, and unbelief. By the way, those are very, very monumental obstacles. From just that, it would seem utterly hopeless to actually, for anyone to believe in Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 wrestled with the idea of following Christ, but so overcome with the depth of his sin that he just felt as though there's no way I would ever turn to Christ. There's no hope. In fact, in Romans 7.24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, that's how hopeless he felt in following Christ. But the very next verse, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So today I'd like to look at not just these obstacles, but really the opportunity that is given to us by the new birth. And this opportunity is really and truly an outlandish one. Outlandish because it's so remarkable. It shouldn't happen. There's no way that we would follow Christ according to those obstacles by our own willpower and strength. And yet, this passage shows us that it is possible. And the reason it's possible is because God gives us two means by which we're able to overcome these obstacles. And both of them are outside of us. The first is that Jesus is God. And the second is that Jesus was lifted up. So Jesus is God and Jesus was lifted up. So first, let's look at this reason as to why we have this opportunity. Jesus is God. In verse 13, Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. That might be a little confusing when you look at it at face value, but it's not actually a very uncommon thing for people to think of someone who has actually gone to heaven and wrote to tell about it. In fact, if you go to Amazon and type in you know, going to heaven, you will find different books that actually speak of people saying, I actually went to heaven and this is what I saw, the book, The Boy Who Went to Heaven or Heaven is Real. And, and there are actually multiple others. What's interesting is that this past Christmas break, I was spending some time with some family and um, there was a story told of this one uncle who had died for 30 minutes. And he told the story of all the different things that he saw in heaven. And you listen to it and you think, ah, do you really 
really true. I don't know if any of you have that type of story or know of a relative who has that type of story. But before I quickly dismiss it, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 also says, I know a man who says he went to heaven, the third heaven. And he doesn't even dismiss that outright. So I don't want to say, oh no, they definitely didn't go to heaven or they haven't seen it. But what I do want to say is that the Bible also records two incidences where people went to heaven and they did not die. The first is Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, where the Bible says that Enoch was not, for God took him. And as to what that means and how Enoch went to heaven, we have no idea. But we do know that in some way, Enoch didn't necessarily die. The second is much more known, and it's the story of Elijah. And Elijah, as some of you know, uh, a whirlwind took place and chariot of fire came, comes out of heaven and then sweeps him up and takes him away to heaven. So there are at least, biblically speaking, two incidences where someone went to heaven without actually dying. The word that Jesus speaks of when he talks about heaven is that no one ascended into heaven. And what's he saying by that? And this, the word ascended is the key, meaning there are these exceptions, very rare exceptions to death, but there's only one person who has ascended to heaven after descending from heaven, and that's Jesus himself. And truly, there is only God who can uh, descend and ascend. It's a statement of divinity. It's Jesus' way of saying, no one can do this except for God himself. And that's actually really important because throughout the Gospel of John, especially in John chapter 3, where he's talking about someone who's being born again, and we've gone through all these different obstacles and saying, there's absolutely no way someone can turn to Christ by their own will and their power and their intellect and their strength and their reasonability. It's just not going to happen. It has to be the work of God. And so Jesus sort of reinforces that idea by saying, well, here's what I have done. And no one can do that except for me. So this is sort of the first thing we have to recognize is that Jesus is God. He does the work of saving people. Verse 13 reminds us of that truth. I agree with uh, John Calvin's description of what takes place at the new birth in showing that it is God. He does the work. And it's this, John Calvin says, no man will ever of himself be able to come to Christ but God must first approach him by his spirit as to the kind of drawing. It is not violent, so as to compel men by external force, but still it is a powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit which makes men willing who formerly were unwilling and reluctant. So how does a person who before, and that's all of us, by the way, there's not a single person in this room who at birth decided to follow Christ. Everybody is reluctant, unwilling, refuses. But God, by his work, dramatically, supernaturally, does the work of saving. And it is Jesus, who is God himself, who is the only one who can do that work. Second, then, there is an opportunity that is given to us. So if first, the only way we have this opportunity is Jesus has to be God, because only God can change the heart to be born again. The second is that 
there had to be something more even than that. And Jesus says what was more is that the Son of Man would be lifted up, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This means by which a person actually is born again is really crazy, actually. It's so odd that the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, if you know his story, was a former persecutor of the Christian faith. He was, he was going to Damascus and doing all he could to basically destroy Christians. He hated them. He despised them. But he met the Lord in Acts chapter 9 and is dramatically converted and transformed. But he understands the mindset and the heart of a person who does not know Christ. He says, according to 1 Corinthians 1, that the message of the cross is foolishness to the wise. It's, it's idiocy. It's moronic. Um, to the Jew, he calls it a scandal. It's scandalous to believe in the cross. The cross does not make sense to a person who is inherently self-sufficient and believes they don't need anyone in their life. And so when Jesus is describing the impact and the power upon which a person is born again, he begins to go back to the Old Testament and uses a metaphor that is actually described a story. It's not a metaphor, but it's metaphorically to what he's doing to a story of what happened to the Israelites in Numbers chapter 21. So that's where I want to go to is Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers 21, we're told the story of the Israelites who had been now going through the desert for over 40 years. I mean, for those of you who, like me, enjoy hiking, I, I took our staff on a hike. Um, we, we went with George Snayman. We went for about 13 miles from Muir Woods up to Mount Tam and then back, looped around. 13 miles. And I don't know if you think of that as, oh, that's really short, or that's really long. <laughs> I was just about to tell this part, which is that, so I took Pastor Fuji. I didn't tell him. I didn't want him to not do it because it's long. So I, I just didn't even tell him how long the hike was. I just said, oh, we're going on a staff hike. So I decided to gather them all up. We start moving, and we go up. And about halfway up the mountain, he starts cramping up badly. And so George is like grabbing his leg and straightening out. And he said, I, just leave me here. I won't make it. Said, We're not leaving you there. Come on. You got to get up and keep on. And he's like, call me an Uber at the top. I really I need, to, I need a break. By God's grace, we made it. It was awesome. Maybe you could ask him later about how he felt a week later. But... That was for about seven hours. What about 40 years? When you go through a desert, if you've ever been to Death Valley, the hottest place in the United States in the summer, it's about 132 degrees at its peak. You need a lot of water for, let's say, your family, if you were to go to Death Valley, into the desert. What about for hundreds of thousands of people? You know that when the United States military goes to different places around the world to go and have, say, a war or, or some sort of 
expedition or something that is an intervention, there's a whole, whole, whole section of the military that is all about logistics. And if the supply line is not strong enough, you cannot execute a war. It's impossible. To care for a, over, you know, it's, no one really knows the exact number, but it's anywhere from a half million to a million people for 40 years in the desert. How hard do you think it would be to care for those people? To get water there and food? It's impossible. That's a miracle, right? So the miracle of God providing. But you know the story. Some of you know the story. What did he provide? He provided water and he provided sustenance by the means of manna every day. And then eventually some birds. And I know some of you, when you open your refrigerators and it's stacked full of food, you look inside and you say, I have, there's nothing to eat, right? There's nothing. You know, if you go to Yelp and start yelping all the restaurants in our area, you start like scrolling through every single, oh, I ate there, I ate there, I don't like that. Oh, I've... And no matter how good it is, eventually you get tired of it. There's nothing to eat, even though there's a wealth of food. The Israelites were eating man every day with a bunch of birds and for 40 years. So you can imagine what was happening. They started grumbling, complaining. And I don't think we should be so hard on them. I'm trying to set that story for you because I want you to realize that their grumbling, complaining is not so, it's not so crazy. In fact, you might be grumbling and complaining too if you were there at that time. And you might have been saying, Moses has no idea what he's doing. What am I doing here? Why did I leave Egypt? But what they forgot was what Egypt was like. Egypt was terrible. It was oppressive. They were slaves. They had no freedom. But that's the journey of life. That's what students go through. Most of you, I don't think, I mean, some of you have part-time jobs, teenagers, right? You have part-time jobs, maybe some of you. Some of you have no job. And so you might open your refrigerator and say, what's, mom, what's there to eat? There's nothing to eat. And maybe the food, you're picking at the food for dinner that your mom or dad has prepared so diligently and say, this food isn't so great or whatever it might be, complaints. Well, we forget what we have. Forget, you know, actually you're not doing anything for this. You're not working for it. You're not preparing it. Someone has done this for you. And an ungratefulness starts taking hold of our hearts. But it's not just teenagers at work. You know, we uh, complain about our jobs. It's hard. Our boss stinks. Our coworkers are not great. It's tedious. But it provides for us. And while there is a place to say we want, and this is a whole other topic, to strive and to find meaning in what we do, but at the same time, the complaintful heart just so uh, fills our hearts because we have forgotten God's grace. We've forgotten all the blessings that the Lord has provided. We've forgotten the fact that actually the fact that I have this job, and you know when you really, really appreciate it is when you get fired from your job. You're laid off, and you have, now you're anxious about how am I going to provide for my family? This is 
a nonstop heart that we have. It's why sin is a reality for us. It's why rebellion against God. That's why grumbling, complaining about what we do not have is such a stench to God's nose. It's something that he despises because it just says, I don't believe in you, I don't trust you, and I hate what I have, which is ultimately saying, I don't care about you. There's an underappreciation. And so look what happens then in Numbers 21.6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. You cannot simply reject a holy, perfect, and just God without consequence. Because if God doesn't actually punish that and judge that, then he's not God. He's a nice grandfather. He's powerless. He's weak. He's definitely not holy, and he's definitely not perfect. He's not God. He has to punish that, or else he should just walk away and say, I I have no power whatsoever. But what God doesn't do is he doesn't leave them, even though they deserve to be left behind. And so what Israel does is what we would probably do. They cry out. They, they feel miserable. They, when you lose your job, you know when you feel most thankful, grateful for every blessing you have is when you lose something, when you're suffering. I guarantee you that if suddenly you, were, you went to the doctor and you were diagnosed, and this is happening to people we know in this very church or people we care about, when they're diagnosed with a, a condition that says you have five years left to live, you have three years left to live, pretty much guarantee you that complaining about work won't really come that high in your life as a priority. I don't think you'll be complaining that much about the restaurants that you don't have many choices to eat at or the types of, you won't be saying, how come all my friends have an iPhone 14 and I have an iPhone 6? I mean, whatever it might be, suddenly when you know I only have a few years to live, Everything seems beautiful and wonderful, and you're going to take advantage of everything. And so God brings the judgment of these fiery serpents. They cry out, and then God does what he always does. But he does it in a very different way. When he heals them, he says in verses 8 through 9, this is what happens. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze servant, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And that's what Jesus is speaking of in John chapter 3, verses 14, 15, this idea of the bronze serpent on a pole that is lifted up. Anyone who looks at it lives. Jesus is saying, I'm that I'm like that serpent on the pole. When the son of man, as he knows himself, as he's going to that cross and as he's lifted up, he's saying, that's me. And you need to look at me and believe and then you will live. Now, because this is such a a critical part of understanding how we are born again, and Jesus is making this metaphor, I wanna focus on, so if, if Jesus lifted up, three different parts of what it means for Jesus to be lifted up. The first is that Jesus brings up the idea of the serpent. And this serpent is very significant. 
The snake in the Bible is not inherent, like God created the snake. So it's not as though snakes in and of themselves are evil. But God so happened to use, and really ultimately, he ultimately uses the snake, but Satan, penultimately, he actually uses the snake to embody himself. And so we see this in Genesis chapter three, verse one. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. That's what Satan does. He embodies, he takes over, he possesses the body of a snake. And so the snake throughout the biblical uh, biblical history has always represented Satan himself, evil. And ultimately the curse because God actually does two things. He curses when Adam and Eve sin. Amazingly, he doesn't curse Adam and Eve, but he does curse the snake and he curses the ground. So those are the two things that bear the curse of God, the snake and the ground. Now that's really striking because think about that for a moment. If the snake is cursed and Jesus is comparing himself to that snake that is being lifted up, that's startling. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But here's the idea is that when I think of snakes, um, there are two stories that George Naaman has told me that just are so striking about snakes. Let me tell you three snake stories, actually. Three snake stories. The first is that he told me the story of one time he was having a, he was in Goma or somewhere in Nigeria or somewhere, and he was having a dream. In the dream, the snake was attacking him. And it was just a horrific dream. He woke up. That night, he was just calling uh, Carolyn and seeing how things were, and she said, last night, a snake was underneath our house, a black mamba. If you know anything about snakes, the black mamba is considered to be one of the most powerful snakes and most venomous in all the earth. And that black mamba was underneath their flat and it came out and they had to chase it down and kill it. And it was a horrific thing. So this snake was literally trying to attack George's family as he had this dream. The second snake story is One time he and a group of church leaders went to go in to bring the gospel to a village. And as they went, they just sensed this huge oppression over this village. It was so, so dark and oppressive there. And one thing they knew is that witchcraft and shamanism was a significant part of this village. And so they got together a group of church leaders and they prayed and fasted and then went into that village and shared the gospel. And suddenly they sensed this lifting of oppression. But with this lifting of oppression, literally he said he saw all these snakes just leaving the village. It was so shocking to everyone. But once those snakes left, everything, just the hearts of people opened dramatically. The third story is I was uh, driving with my family. We were in Africa on a mission trip. And we're driving, we see this old lady and she was taking her stick and just bashing the side of the road. And we're like, as we're driving, we're pulling up and we look out to the side and there she is 
She has this big snake that is on the ground. The head is absolutely crushed. And she's just staring at us with a big smile. You know, I mean, as if it was just a normal day. And I was just thinking, wow, there's no way that snake is getting up. And that's exactly the image that you need to think about when we think about this snake because of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 tells us a lot about snakes, but it tells us the end of the snake. Now, here's what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and bring your offspring, your being Satan, the snake, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what the Lord is saying to Satan, he's saying, you are going to do everything you can to destroy the offspring of this woman, not an offspring, but the offspring, the ultimate offspring, the Messiah, the Savior. And you, Satan, are going to do whatever you can to take that person down, my Savior. And we know, as we follow along in Scripture, you see that Satan does everything to destroy the work of Christ, even deceiving and conniving and leading to the very death of Christ. And at first glance, it seems Satan has won. Christ has lost. He's died. But we know how the story ends. And so what God is saying, you're going to bruise his heel. That death is actually going to destroy you because he's going to crush your head. At the cross, when you think, Satan, that you've won, you're going to find that he actually will destroy death and you once and for all. It's the great reversal. And I tell you, when I saw that dead snake with the crushed head, there is no way that snake is ever coming back to life. That's the point of what the Lord tells the enemy is that there's no hope for you. Satan is powerful. He is. He is someone we must not underestimate. He is a deceiver. If you've ever encountered any type of darkness before, spiritual darkness, and sometimes you really do sense it. Sometimes in a house, in a person, in the, just the weight of addiction, when someone is addicted to something, from all sorts of addictions, alcoholism, um, and just a, a real refusal, someone who is, as the Bible calls it, stiff-necked, that that person is under a heavy weight. We must never underestimate the power that the enemy has to control such a person, which is all the more reason why we must pray for them. We spent a lot of, week, a lot of time this past week praying for lost souls, and there is no hope for such a person except for Christ. And so therefore, we pray for that person. And it's all the more reason, always pray for God's protection. Pray against the enemy's schemes and deceptions and powers because he will shoot flaming arrows as Paul describes in spiritual war. Satan, his greatest desire is to destroy the work of Christ. He knows he can't destroy Christ, but he will do everything he can within his power to destroy you, to take you down. And so we, are, we come together, we pray together, we are together. To try to live the life of faith alone or with your family, if, you, if you've ever tried just saying, I don't need to go to church, I don't need to be with God's people, 
I'll just be with my family. Well, you know, one thing you can't really do with just your family is actually deal with difficult people. And that's exactly how we grow, how God sanctifies us most is to deal with everyone. And then God redeems, he draws us together, he unites, and he shows us Christ. So the enemy, the serpent, we must not underestimate him, but God has done this great reversal. But how has he done it? That's even the greater picture. And the way he's done it is as a substitute, as a substitute. The bronze snake in every way represents God's curse. Moses saw the snake as a manifestation of Satan and evil in Genesis 3, God's curse. In fact, the Apostle Paul also says this in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And here's the most important part, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So there is no doubt, it is unmistakable that when Jesus is comparing himself to that snake, he's saying, I'm going to be the curse of God. Snakes are not supposed to give you life. Snakes are supposed to be curses of God. It's supposed to be demonic, satanic. So when Jesus is hung up on a pole, on a tree, when he's saying, you need to look at me. What he's saying is, you need to look at me and see that the curse that I am. And what curse is he? He's our curse. He's a substitute for us. That is to say that the judgment of God, and when it says bronze snake, the word bronze, that material in the Bible, Deuteronomy 28, 23, Revelation 1, 15, refers to God's judgment. It's always in connection to God's judgment. So the bronze snake is God pouring out his judgment because the people of Israel, when they had rebelled and decided to go their own way and say, I don't need you, God. I'm going to figure it out for myself. God decided the only hope you have is for me to judge you this way. And it's going to be this judgment now that we poured out on who? On his son. On his son. He would become the curse for us. He would be the one who would bear all of our sins and he would substitute himself so that the third point of Jesus being lifted up is that so that he might be our savior, so that he would be our savior. We are told in Numbers 21.7 this, the people turned to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. And so Moses prays for them. And the next words, if I were to write, if I would have imagined or guessed what would have happened next, I would have guessed that it would have said, and the Lord God healed the people. So Moses prays, God heals the people. But you know what? That's actually not what happens. Because what we need to realize is that Moses is not the savior. And the church is not the savior. No pastor is the savior. Um, no friend is the savior. There's only one savior. And so we see the Lord says in Numbers 21, 8, the very next verse, when they pray, when Moses prays, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. 
the only hope that they have is God enacting the very work of saving his people. And it would take God taking his own son to bear the curse and the punishment of our sins. It's the only way. Now here's the thing, with Moses, what did Moses provide? So if Moses had prayed and they had healed, Moses was the lawgiver. Moses told the people, do this, do this, do this, do this. And God is saying, in this instance, the law will not save you. Meaning, there's nothing that we can do to be born again. You cannot be born again by going to Villafranca. So I'm talking basically to those who are considering doing that, the, you know, the high school students. Actually, we're willing to take anyone. You don't even have to be a Christian. And the assumption is not, oh, you're going to be a Christian because you go on a missions trip. That is absolutely the opposite of what is being said here. The hope is that you will hear the gospel. You'll come to see it. You'll, you'll hear the good news over and over and over. And the Lord will do the work. Because there's no other hope. There's nothing we do. You cannot serve the poor and therefore be a Christian and be born again. You can't decide today, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm, I'm going to be more faithful. I'm going to do it by my own will. I'm going to commit myself now. It's, that's not how it works. God had to provide his own son. And that would be God's son bearing our curse, our sin. And then there would have to be a response to that. So here's the response. Is if God provides his son, he dies on the cross, God's judgment is poured out, Jesus bears our curse What is the response of the people of Israel? What did they have to do? They had to look. But think about this for a moment. Go back to Numbers. And these snakes come and they bite you and the venom is slowly starting to take hold. And then Moses makes a bronze snake, puts it on a pole and says, all right, if you want to live, you have to look at this pole. Now, I would imagine some people might look at it almost immediately and then they're healed. But I have a feeling some, it took a while. For some, they get bit. They think, "Ah, I'm okay. I'm just going to take this mud and put it on. And some of you are like that, right? I'm like that too. You get hurt or something. Ah, I'm okay. I just put a little Band-Aid on and everything goes fine. And usually it does until it doesn't, until the infection takes hold. So you put your mud on, you say, ah, I'm okay, I don't need any, I don't need to look at that pole. That's superstition anyway. But this, this venom, this infection is just going up to your heart and it's starting to take over your body and suddenly you're seeing this purpley red and, it's, and you're starting to get the chills and you think, oh, I'm not feeling so well, I'm not feeling so well. And someone says, just look at the pole. And you say, no, I'm not looking to the pole. That's just idiocy. That, I'm, I'm smart. I, you know, I graduated from here and I did this. No way. That's for anti-intellectuals. That's a bunch of hogwash. That's superstition. I'm not doing that. And here the infection is going. It's getting closer and closer to your heart. And 
you're sweating, your temperature's going up to 103, you're shaking, you're shivering. Now it's just about to get to your heart. And finally you say, all right, I'll look. And you look at that last moment and you're healed. I would imagine there are some who are going to look, and some of you have, you've heard the gospel. It makes sense. The Lord just has grabbed you and opened your eyes and you say, this is beautiful, I love it. For some of you say, this is idiocy. Some of you say, you know what, I'm pretty comfortable because the venom hasn't really taken hold that much. But my friends, it's getting there. And it will get there. It's not it might, it will. If it doesn't destroy you tomorrow, it will destroy you one day. Now here's the grace of God, is that you can look right before you're about to die and he will still save you. Isn't that amazing? I think that's remarkable. I would not do that if I was God. I'd say, God, if it takes that long, I'm, there's a deadline, there's a cutoff. I love deadlines. You know, I love deadlines. If some of you parents, you know, I've been sending a lot of deadlines to, you know, regarding your teenagers, deadlines. And I press them. I, I send so many emails. Hey, hey, you got to register now. That's my instinct is got to obey the law. But the Lord is gracious. A thief on the cross, last second, and he says, I'll save you. This is exactly why if you have an unbelieving loved one, friend, and they are on their deathbed, and they refuse to believe, do not give up proclaiming Christ to that person. Because even in the last second, if they really believe in that last second, you know what the Lord says? I will save you. But they must look. They must look and see. You know what they need to see? They need to see what all of us need to see is when we look at the snake, at the curse of God, what you have to see is yourself. You're looking at a mirror. And when you look at the mirror of your, the darkness of your soul, it's then that you're ready to be healed. Only then. But we're so proud. We don't want to look. We say to ourselves, I can save myself. I'm smart enough. I'm athletic enough. I have many good qualities about me. Or maybe it's the opposite, but it's the same heart. I'm not good enough. There's no way God could save me. I sinned too terribly. God, you know I did that. I aborted a child. There's no way you're going to save me because that's a horrific act. You know, I did this. I looked at pornography for so many years. I've been, I've been addicted to sex my whole life. There's no way, God, you're going to love me. No, the the cross shows that he can and he does because that cross is so horrific the curse of God is so terrible but that shows that we actually he died for us for me but you have to look are you too proud to look are you scoffing at Christ because you're saying it's foolishness this Christianity religious stuff it's foolishness You don't have to be holy. You don't have to come to him when everything works. You don't have to come to him when you're all cleaned up. No, you come to him as you are today, right now. And it's not too late. 
But it will be too late one day. It will be. If you wait too long, the venom will come and take your heart and forever, forever, you will be destroyed. It will be horrific. So see him who gave his life for you, who has become a curse for you. The very curse words, when everyone uses Jesus' name as a curse, you know what the amazing thing is? Is that Jesus himself decided to be that curse. When I hear people taking the name of the Lord in vain and use it in in like a, a string of expletives and curse words and Jesus is part of it, it always bothers me so much. But then this story tells us that Jesus himself says, I'm going to voluntarily be the curse word for you and for me, for you and for me. This, he did this for us. When we come to this table, you come to this table knowing that your sin is on that tree. Your deserving of that curse Jesus bore so that you would be set free forever. May you find that to be true. Let's pray together. Father, it's uh, sobering to consider that your son would do such a thing. The world curses Jesus. That's expected though. But what is extraordinary and shocking is that Jesus, you accepted being a curse so that we would be set free from the very curse of God, from the judgment of God, so that we would be righteous. It's not because of anything we've done, but as the Apostle Paul says, because of your great mercy. So we do come today. I pray that there would be people who would look today and see the Savior as you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.